Well, good morning. So glad that you are tuned in today. My name is Nick. I'm the worship pastor here at Grace. And so if you've been tuned in with us over the last several weeks, you're probably used to seeing me behind a guitar, which means today I don't know what to do with my hands because I have the privilege today of continuing us in our series, What Now? Where we're really asking the question, what do we do now that the world looks a little bit different? What do we do now that everything's been turned on its head? We are in a season of change right now, and so we're asking, what now? How can we come out of this season better than we walked into it? And so last week, Pastor Aaron kicked us off in this series with a powerful message, talking about how our tests can actually be opportunities for us. One of my favorite authors is Bob Goff, and he says it this way. He says, when you hit rock bottom, turn on your headlamp and look around to see what's down there. In other words, we can actually be using this time to build up our faith, to to take inventory of what's in our heart, what's in our minds, to take inventory of our choices, why we do what we do, how we respond to our family, how we view the world around us, how we treat other people. And so right now we're looking at the ways that we're tested. I heard a story recently about four college students and they were taking a Monday night class and they had an exam coming up, but over the weekend they didn't study for the exam. So they needed an excuse to get out of their test. So on Monday afternoon, they put on dirty, ragged clothes and they wiped grease on themselves and they went in late to their class and went up to their professor and said, I'm so sorry we're late. See, we were coming back from a wedding this weekend and the the tire on our car blew. So we got stranded in the middle of nowhere. We were trying to fix the car. We called the tow truck. Everything was a disaster and we came straight here. This is the first place we came and we're so sorry that we're late. Can we please make up the exam? And the professor says, sure, come back in three days and we'll make up the exam. So that's exactly what they do. They take three days to study. They come back ready for the test. And the professor separates them into four separate rooms so that they can't cheat off of each other. And he gives them each their test. And to the student's surprise, they find that on the test, there's only one question written. And it simply says, which tire burst? And see, the test wasn't the moment that they lied, was it? But the test was the moment that their lie was revealed. It was the moment that it came to light. See, a test is where you prove yourself. When you take a test in school, that's not the moment you learn the content. That's the moment you show that you already know the content. Or when you take your driver's exam, that's not the moment you learn to drive. That's the moment you prove that you've already learned to drive. Right? It's the studying for hours and hours leading up to the test that allows you to pass the test. It's the hours of practicing on the road and in parking lots that allows you to pass your driver's test. And so today I want to propose to you that it's actually in the meaningless and in the mundane. It's in the boring and the everyday moments, in the routine and the day-to-day, that we should be building up our faith so that when the test does come, we are able to stand on the rock that is Christ. Because right now the world around us has slowed down. And so many of us are are staying at home. Many of us are isolated. My dad would always tell me growing up that integrity is what you do when nobody's looking. And right, sometimes that's exactly what the test is. What will you do when you're behind closed doors? What will you do when you're staying home? What will you do when nobody's looking? This goes all the way back to the beginning of the human condition, we get the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 and 3. And in chapter 3, verse 6, you have the serpent come to test Adam and Eve. 
And verse 6 says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So Adam and Eve think they're alone with the serpent in this moment. They don't realize that God is always with them, and so they fail the test. And in doing so, they create kind of a template for brokenness that has lasted until today. Right? They create this brokenness. They separate the relationship between humanity and between God. But later in the Bible, we meet a man named David. And David stands in contrast to Adam and Eve. He is a man of integrity. When we meet David, he's just a lowly shepherd, which is a lowly occupation in that day and age in Israel. He's a shepherd and he's the youngest son in his family. And so one day God sends the prophet Samuel to David's family. And Samuel arrives to anoint the future king of Israel. And when he arrives, he, he kind of assumes that it's going to be one of the older brothers that will be the king because they're, they're stronger and they're taller. They're more mature. They have more experience. But they come in one by one and God rejects each of them as the future king. And this is where we get the famous line where God says, humans may look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And it's in looking at the heart that God sees something in David. And so he instructs Samuel to anoint David as the future king of Israel. And I love David's story because David doesn't get to take the throne right then and there. There's already a king on the throne, but David takes years becoming the man that he needs to be to rule Israel. So he spends years playing the harp, worshiping God. He spends years studying the scriptures. And during this time, he even writes many of the Psalms that we can still read today. He's spending this time becoming a man after God's own heart. And during this time, he even slays Goliath. He didn't learn to become king the day he took the throne. He learned to become king by becoming the man he needed to be for years leading up to that moment. But there was already a king in Israel. His name was Saul. And can you imagine being in Saul's shoes? You're ruling a nation and you know that the prophet of the God that your nation believes in, the prophet anointed a young man, somebody else, to be the king. Can you imagine the jealousy that would rise up in you, knowing that somebody was coming to take your throne and he had God's blessing to do it? Can you imagine the threat that you would feel in that moment? And so Saul feels threatened. He feels jealous and he seeks to take David out. He wants to kill him. So David goes on the run. And David is fleeing for his life. He's hiding in the wilderness. He's hiding in caves. But one day, David and his troops, his men, come up on a different situation where, where they find Saul's troops in their camp and they are all fast asleep. And so David has a unique opportunity right now because his enemy, the person that's trying to kill him, is fast asleep. And he receives some advice from one of his trusted men in 1 Samuel chapter 26 and verse 8. And it says, Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. See, David has an opportunity here to not only take out his enemy, but also to save his own life and to take the throne right then and there. But David's a man of integrity. And so he responds in verse 11 and 12 by saying, The Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now, 
Get the spear and water jug that are near his head, and let's go. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head, and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. So David could have saved his own life. He could have taken the kingdom right then and there. He could have become king. But God's blessing is so much more important to him than working on his own timeline. And so he takes the spear and the jug from near King Saul's head, and he he lifts them up to show Saul that he was there, that he could have harmed him. He could have taken him captive. He could have killed him. But he shows him, I have your spear and your jug, but I respect you too much to do that to you because I know that God has anointed you as king right now. So I'm not trying to take your throne, Saul. He's demonstrating respect. He's demonstrating integrity. And so God blesses David. God sees that integrity. God sees that righteousness. God sees David's heart and God blesses him. So years later, when David does become the king, God again sends a prophet to David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, in verses 8 and 9, it says, Now then, tell my servant David. So this is the prophet speaking God's words over David. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. And then skipping down to verse 16, God speaks over David and says, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So this is the man that God had for Israel. This is the leader God appointed to rule over Israel. This is the beginning of God's kingdom on earth, his reign. So Israel is blessed during this time because of David and his righteousness and his leadership. And they are constantly victorious in every battle they go to. Their kingdom is expanding. They're seeing prosperity and success in everything that they do. And I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites at this time. They're seeing a leader that leads their nation to heights they've never seen before. After growing up, hearing about God's covenant with Abraham to give him a land that he would possess and to give him prosperity and to make his name and his nation great. And they're finally seeing it. David has led them to the heights. They're living in the promised land and their nation has finally become great. Everything is going exactly according to plan until we reach 2 Samuel chapter 11. And in verse 1, it says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. So we have, a, we have a problem here. We have a conflict because at the time when kings go to war, David remained in Jerusalem. In other words, much like many of us right now, David stays home. And here's the deal. What you do when you're staying home says a lot about your character. What you do when you're by yourself, when you're left alone, says a lot about who you are. And so I want to give you two challenges today. And the first one is to pay attention to how you use your time. 
And in fact, right now, if you could comment below and let us know what is your favorite way to spend your time? What's your favorite hobby or pastime? What's something you really like to do for fun, to pass the time? Something that you maybe like doing with your family, by yourself, with your friends? What is your favorite way to pass the time? What's your favorite hobby? Comment below. We would love to read those. For me, I'm a, I'm a big baseball fan. And so me and my wife, we, we love watching games. We love watching baseball. And we actually just had our firstborn son. He's just over two months old. And I was really looking forward to this baseball season to be able to watch the games with him, hold him and rock him to sleep and give him bottles while having baseball on. Because you know, if you're a parent, you know that at the very beginning of your child's life, you spend a lot of time like this. You spend a lot of time rocking your child or trying to put them to sleep, feeding them bottles, holding them, just spending hours just holding them. And so I thought it would be awesome to be able to have a game on in the background while doing that, to be able to watch baseball while spending time with my son. And obviously during this time, that's all been taken away. But this time has actually given me a unique choice that I might not have otherwise been thinking about if this hadn't happened. And so when I'm rocking my son and spending that time sitting down and holding him, I have the choice. I could just flip on the TV and watch something to pass the time as quickly as possible. But I've realized that I also have the opportunity to pray over him and his future and over myself and my wife as parents. I have the choice to even put on the Bible app or a Bible podcast and listen to scripture while I'm holding my son. And I don't know if I would have thought about those things if baseball was on, right? But this time has given me a unique choice to use the time that God has given us. See, it's funny because when it comes to business or, or work or even managing our busy schedules, we realize that time is a precious resource. But right now, God has given us the gift of more time in many cases. And I just want to ask, are you using that gift to deepen your relationship with God, to build upon that foundation? Are you using this time for your family? Are you using this time thinking about other people? Now, of course, there is grace. Sometimes I do flip on the TV and there's absolutely nothing wrong with having hobbies and passing the time in ways that are fun and relaxing to you. But in many ways, we have to realize we've received the gift of more time during this season. So I want to ask, what are you doing with it? And my second challenge to you right now is to pay attention to how you respond to temptation. Because being home can bring added temptation, can't it? Whether it's from the snack drawer or from the internet, I want to ask, how do you respond when you're tempted? Because when David stays home from war, he's faced with temptation. And in the next verse, 2 Samuel 11, verse 2, we see that one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now that word for beautiful right there, the Hebrew word is tov, which literally translates to she is very good of sight. And so David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, or literally the Hebrew phrase there means to take her. So she came to him and he slept with her. See, David, in this moment, should have been out at war, supporting his troops, supporting his men. But he stays home. And in doing so, he, he sleeps with 
the wife of one of his soldiers who he sent out to the war. He later learns that she's actually pregnant, and so he sends her husband to the front lines to be intentionally killed in battle. So what's going on here? This is not the man of integrity we've been talking about. What happened to David? Where did his integrity and his righteousness go? This is not the man after God's own heart. But the Bible is actually doing something amazing here. And I want to take a deeper dive into this scripture and look at some key words to see what God is opening up to us today. So if we look again at those verses from 2 Samuel, it says that from the roof he saw a woman bathing. Now the woman was very good of sight. Then David sent messengers who took her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now this brings up comparisons with another temptation story that we read a few minutes ago. And we go all the way back to Genesis 3 to Adam and Eve. And we read that when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Do you see what's happening here? The author of 2 Samuel is, is yelling at us to pay attention to Genesis 3. He's, he's turning on neon signposts to point us back to Genesis 3 to say that, that what's happened here is that David has actually put himself into the mold of Adam and Eve and he's turned another man's wife into the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. See, just like a woman saw the fruit was good, so she took it, David saw a woman who he thought was good, so she took, so he took her. These stories lay on top of each other like an exact match. They are a perfect match because the author of 2 Samuel wants us to see that even David, the promised king from God, the man after God's own heart, Israel's greatest leader of all time, and the beginning of the royal line that God says will last forever, even this man can fit perfectly into the mold created by the first people that fell short of God's plan for their lives. Even, even David can fit into that brokenness. Even David can have his relationship with God broken due to his own flaws and failures. Up to this point, David seems to do everything right. But when he stayed home, he wasn't careful and he failed the test. And so what are we supposed to do with this? See, the story of the Old Testament is that all of us are broken. That all of us can fit into this mold, this template created by Adam and Eve. That all of us are desperate for a savior. Because if you read the story of the Old Testament, you'll find that Abraham and Moses and David and Elijah and the prophets, they all have flaws, they all have failures, and they all have stories of sin. So we don't just need prophets and kings and leaders and priests. What we need is somebody like Abraham who will have great faith. We need someone like Moses to lead us out of slavery and into freedom. We need somebody like David to, ru to rule and reign righteously over God's people. We need somebody like Elijah who will perform God's miracles. And we need someone like the prophets who will speak God's truth clearly. And this man comes and his name is Jesus. He is the second Adam, the greater Moses, and the seed of David. 
and he comes to earth and he begins his ministry and he's baptized. And after being baptized, he's led out into the wilderness where he's left alone. And the tempter comes as he's alone in the wilderness. But unlike Adam and Eve and David, Jesus stands on the word of God and does not fall into temptation. Jesus stands strong on his faith. And he spends the next three years loving people radically, performing miracles, teaching amazing things before he walks into Jerusalem after three years knowing that his days are numbered. And the night before his crucifixion, Jesus ends up in a garden. And if you remember, the first garden we see in scripture has the story of two people who choose their own way over God's way. They choose their will over God's will, and it ends in their death. But Jesus, in a garden, in Luke twenty-two forty-two, prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but Father, your will be done. See, Jesus knows this ends in his death, but he still prays for his Father's will above his own, not to save his life, but to save yours. Jesus turns everything on its head. And so today I want to leave you with a challenge and with an encouragement. I want to challenge you to pay close attention to how you're using your time and how you respond to temptation. See, I want you to set yourself up to pass the test when it comes. But I also want to encourage you that our hope is not just in our own ability to fight temptation or to use our time wisely. Our hope is in Jesus. And although you've made mistakes, although I've made mistakes, we can put our faith and our trust in Jesus who came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross to pay for your sins and for my sins. We can put our faith in Jesus who rose again from the grave to lift us up out of death and into eternal life in the presence of our God. And so if that's you today, if you want to put your faith in God, if you want to put your faith in Jesus, I just want to ask you to pray along with me. And there's nothing special about my words specifically, but I want to invite you to pray along with me, to confess to God that you have been a sinner, but you're placing your trust in him to purify you, to cleanse you, to make you clean, so that when you come out of this season, when you come out of this time, you can walk out of it better than you walked into it. So let's pray together. God, we worship you and we thank you for who you are. That even though over and over and over again we see stories of human failure, you sent your Son to purify us, to cleanse us from our sin, and to lift us from death to life. So God, right now we place our trust in you, and we commit to follow you. God, we ask you for your forgiveness from our sins, and we just pray that you would lift us up into new life and make us a new creation as we follow you for the rest of our lives. And Lord, we just want to lift up our church family to you right now. We want to lift up our state and our nation in this world. God, that you would be a God of healing over those that are sick. That you would be a God that helps those that are in times of troubles right now. And God, we pray that you would empower us to live lives that fight temptation and use our time wisely. Lord, we love you. We lift you up. We glorify you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if that was you today, if you said yes to a life following Jesus would you do us a favor and either drop the hand emoji into the comments below or go ahead and text I said yes to the number that's on the screen right now. 
We are so grateful that you tuned in today. We hope you had a wonderful time worshiping with us today, and we can't wait to see you next week.